You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. With us today is Captain John Cirillo, a 31-year veteran of the FDNY, and today we're going to talk about backdrafts and smoke explosions. John, I've known you for a long time, but maybe for our listeners, maybe give a quick bio. Thank you, Brian. Uh, I'm currently a uh, covering captain in Special Operations Command. I uh, cover the rescues and the squads. But really, probably what changed my career trajectory is in 2006, I got involved in understanding a deeper level of what we do on the science side of fire dynamics. So we uh, were trying to wrap our brains around wind-impacted fires back then. That wind-impacted fire uh, program evolved into the ventilation and doing the two sets of experiments out on Governor's Island and, uh, you know, everything that's, that's transpired since then. We've had a few incidents in Upper Manhattan on Nagel Avenue and out in Queens, an incident you happen to be at, taxpayer fires where we had either a backdraft or a smoke explosion. I'd just like to dig a little deeper today. Could you give us a brief description of a backdraft versus smoke explosion? Absolutely, Chief. Certainly, the understanding of backdrafts and smoke explosions or rapid fire events or flashovers, whatever you want to call them, is based in an understanding of the science behind it, which then leads, obviously, into the ventilation uh, and what we do at fires. So, currently, our best understanding of a backdraft is basically when we have a lot of heat, a lot of smoke, but we're missing the key element of air and it can happen in any structure. However, it tends to, what we've seen through experience, pretty much be focused on the taxpayer-type building. And so why is that? Usually that fire that's brewing for a long period of time, let's just say in an occupancy, first-floor occupancy of a taxpayer-type building, it's a a large-volume area, it burns, it shuts itself down because there's no air but continues to heat up. And when the fire department gets there, what do we do? We open things up. That's what we do. We have to try to find the fire. And when that opening up occurs, there can be some signs and symptoms of air pulling in the missing ingredient. And then when it gets to the ripe point, there's a deflagration. There's an explosion. There's a rapid expansion of all these gases. So that's the backdraft. High heat, a lot of fuel, no air. The smoke explosion is a little different creature. That one tends to be where the fuel in the air is already pre-mixed. It can be in a hot environment, but not necessarily. It can be near the main body fire, but not necessarily. That one, and what's interesting about it and what members have to understand is that one, because the only thing it's lacking is something to set it off, we probably are not going to see any signs and symptoms. Like in the Queens Boulevard fire, that was what we believed to be a smoke explosion of the cocklocked area above a certain section of that store that was sealed off. Then when we get to what most firefighters see on the fire ground, the flashover, that's even another different type of thing. That's more of when the fire is progressing, heating things up, and the radiant heat down on all the products in the room tend to flash it over. Now, I won't tell you that is a backdraft, that is a smoke explosion, and that is a flashover. We don't understand all of them, and there's gray areas in between each one. So that's really, in a nutshell, we can probably talk hours about this, in a nutshell of what we know about backdraft, smoke explosions, and flashovers to date. I guess one of our main concerns is how do we protect ourselves? Let's start with the signs and symptoms. We know in our procedures they talk about different types of smoke, but maybe just give us a brief overview 
of identifying these things prior to them occurring. The signs and symptoms of the color of smoke. The color of smoke you have to be a little careful of. However, it seems to be in these events, and this includes Queens Boulevard, there was this brown, mushroomy, mustardy kind of yellowish smoke that was emanating from the building. A little bit hard to see at night, but during the day you might see that. That's one indication. Smoke under pressure pulsating smoke or glass fronts where there might be some crazing of the glass or maybe they're even stained a dark color maybe even that brownish mustardy yellow stain on the inside of the glass but probably the number one is when we do force entry do we see air pulling into the structure now that air pulling into the structure we should be looking for that the terms that job wants us to use is ventilation profile. We should be looking at that at every fire. But in particular, in that taxpayer, if it's been brewing and there's smoke pushing from all over the place, when you pop a door, if that air pulls in, now it's not like the movie Backdraft where you pop the door, within seconds there's a massive explosion. It doesn't work that way. The air has to go in. There has to be a mixing effect. And that mixing effect then has to get to a certain level, a flammable explosive limit, and that's when the event occurs, and boom, and you have to be careful. So you have to be looking for that. If we see those signs and symptoms, me personally, I don't want anybody on the roof. The roof at Queens Boulevard lifted up about a foot or so and came down, and thank God it came down square and didn't dislodge or something. We did lose a little piece of the roof towards the back of one of the occupancies, but if the parapet comes down, if there's a massive collapse of a larger section, we would have had multiple injuries, if not fatalities. So protecting ourselves is, you know, hand lines charged and in position. They should be two and a half, so hopefully. Is an inch and three-quarter line better than nothing? Yes, but we know we want the reach and the gallons per minute of a two and a half ready to go. When we open that door, if we have a bit of a flanking position, we can get water into that environment quickly. We think that can mitigate it. Vertical ventilation. Now, here's a very interesting discussion on vertical ventilation. This could be a yeah. podcast topic on itself. Exactly, own. on itself, right. Yes, we still believe getting the roof open and getting the bad stuff up and out the building is a good thing to prevent that. However, if I don't know what the roof structure is made of, if it's lightweight, if it's an open web joist situation and the event occurs or can the cutting of a roof introduce the air into that space, I don't know. But at this point right now, we still believe getting that top popped and getting the bad stuff out, that's a good thing. But if it's a lightweight truss, I don't want anybody on the roof. Then we're just pretty much going to go at it where we take the front of the building, we get flanking lines, as many lines as possible, get water on that structure. There is an alternate method of getting water into that cockloft. There's a tool known as a cockloft nozzle that was designed by the FDNY. I'd like to give a shout out to Chief John Hopkins in the 5-0 Battalion. Uh, he's told me that Whenever he has a fire in that type of structure and he has really high ceilings, the first thing he's thinking about is getting that cockloft nozzle to the roof. That's a brilliant idea. You cockloft nozzle on the roof, you cut the hole, drop it in, spin it around, beautiful. You don't have to worry about it being 15, 16, 70-foot ceilings on the inside with tin. And tin ceilings, I don't care what anybody says, they're very difficult in 2019 and they were difficult in 2008, and they were difficult in 1968. They're hard to pull. You can't get them down quickly. But a quick hole in the roof and that device in the roof, bingo, we got water on the fire. Uh, Mickey Convoy in Rescue 3 also told me that they used it on the roof at a fire up in the Bronx, and that's brilliant. So, John, for those of our listeners that don't know, can you give a brief description of the tool, the cockloft nozzle? Uh, if you can just envision a uh, approximately a little over six-foot-tall 
inch and a half pipe. It's got handles on one end, and at the top, it splits into two nozzles. It has two mainstream tips with the outer stream tip attached. So that outer stream tip is only a half inch diameter. The design is that from below, you get that cockloft nozzle up above the ceiling line, whatever that ceiling is, ceilings need to be pulled, and then you flow the water. And you're to rotate it in a clockwise fashion, kind of back and forth. You don't continually rotate it one way, you kind of rotate it one way and back, and that'll get water into that cockloft area. It'll throw water approximately 60 feet in each direction. If you were not to have a cockloft nozzle, a Bresen distributor lowered into that inspection hole on the roof would throw water in, in many directions uh, very easily. And then obviously even a bent tip pipe of some sort from below, if you can get up on something, it'd do the same thing. But the cockloft nozzle is quick. It works really well either from below or the roof. The cockloft nozzle, what I like about the tool is it gets more water in the area we want it to be and less air. And air is the triggering event of a backdraft. So I want more water, less air, and the cockloft nozzle can get us there. Yeah, you obviously have a lot more maneuverability with opening a, a less section of the ceiling, which, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's being used more and more, just like any tool we have introduced over the years. Definitely, I think there's a, a lot more potential as time goes on. John, at one point you mentioned the operational case study on multiple backdrafts that Chief Jonas did. Let's talk about that one a little while because they had, again, as the title states, more than one. They had a early backdraft and then much later in the operation, without much warning either, they had another smoke explosion event. No one, I think, can explain it better than Chief Jay Jonas when he had a fire in Manhattan, the Inwood section on Nagel Avenue. There is a diamond play presentation on that. I believe it's called Operational Case Study, Multiple Backdrafts at a Manhattan Taxpayer Fire. Diamond Plate's our own internal website. He also did a piece for the FDNY Symposium on fdnypro.org, which is available to the general public. And it's really informative. Let's talk about that one a little while, because they had, again, as the title states, more than one. They had a early backdraft, and then much later in the operation, without much warning either, they had another smoke explosion event. Chief Jonas spells it out phenomenally. That particular fire, what's interesting is, the early one, there were signs and symptoms. The second one, there were no signs and symptoms, and he kind of goes over that whole thing. You know, and, and then we could also talk about which one's more dangerous. It's hard to say, because it depends on what's burning and what's building inside that structure and how it gets set off and how large it is. So there's so many variables. So very interesting. I was not at that job. Yeah. However, that particular fire, we have a lot of video before, during, and after. They don't necessarily catch the first, what we believe to be a backdraft on tape, but they definitely catch the second, which is more of a smoke explosion. And that's well into the fire where roof is open. In fact, the roof got spongy to some point where they pulled everybody off the roof, which again, that's a smart move. There's no reason to be uh, putting people in harm's way when you've gotten holes open, that's it, off the roof, and we'll try to get it from the, the first floor. The more we can document uh, these fires, the better off we are. We recently had a fire out in Queens, what we'll refer to as the Queens Boulevard fire, but it made some national news. It was a pretty dramatic uh, video of a smoke explosion backdraft. I know you've given us some information about it. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about how that happened, when it happened during the fire. It wasn't while initially making entry, which is one point where we worry about backdrafts, but maybe you could give us a little color on that. Sure. On December 13th, early in the morning, 2 a.m. in the morning, I was working in Squad 288, the units were called out uh, on multiple phone calls of a fire at first floor of a, a very typical taxpayer-type building. 
And so on arrival, we had a heavy heat condition, smoke condition in one corner of the taxpayer. All of us on the fire ground are keenly aware of these buildings in the fact that they have common cock loss. We have tremendous difficulty with these type of fires in all different parts of the city. So it's not like we didn't understand what was in front of us. We did, but the fire being at one end of the store and we had a pretty rapid deployment of hand lines into that structure and knocked the fire out on the first floor. Members on the roof did a great job. They cut quickly three holes initially over the main body of fire, which is what we want. They had inspection holes cut. They ended up cutting six holes total on the roof. And as we saw the smoke, that was pushing out the front of the building, but it wasn't particularly heavy or dark. So we did start moving down in the occupancies, uh, opening up and getting in and getting ceilings pulled. And each time we pulled the ceiling, we realized we had fire above us. I personally at one point looked up and saw the fire. It looked pretty standard, yellow flame, not particularly violent looking at all. There was no air pulling into any of the structures. I thought we were getting ahead of it. If you asked me when the event occurred, I would have not said 45 minutes into it, but it was 45 minutes into this fire. Those that saw the YouTube video is pretty spectacular. Me being on the sidewalk or right, right off the sidewalk in the street in front of the buildings, it did not seem to be that intense at all. I really didn't feel any heat. And I just turned my face away from the incident. I felt some things hit me, and then it was gone. And then we picked our people up. Nobody, I think we had some minor injuries. Members on the roof, there was a collapse. We had to get members off the roof and a little bit of that. And then, unfortunately, we did lose the rest of the structure. But there were no signs and symptoms, exactly what we were talking about before, of the impending event, the things we were looking for. Because I was in and out of those occupancies, you know, looking for heat, looking for air pulling in. I saw nothing. So um, did I think I had fire up in the cockloft? Yeah. Uh, it turns out that there was an isolated part of the cockloft. Someone had built a stud plywood wall. So we believe the gas is built up into in that. In the cockloft area? Exactly. So that's why we think that was a smoke explosion in the cockloft as opposed to a backdraft. Well, it's important to remember that a backdraft could occur in many different places. It could be an attic, it could be a cockloft, it could be a manhole. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I would, I would say... 45 minutes into a taxpayer fire is not when you'd expect it to occur. And, uh, and it happens so rapidly. Correct. And, and we had, you know, the vent holes the members had cut up there were pushing a tremendous amount of, again, I would describe as violent pressure was coming out of those holes. That wasn't a standard hole venting and hole venting fire. It was, it was more intense than that. A lesson reinforced in these type of jobs is that to ensure the members assess a proper ventilation profile, and communicate that to the incident commander. That's how the incident commander can make strategic decisions based on those visual observations. Right now, we're still investigating the, the Queens Boulevard fire and really trying to pull it apart and understand what happened there so that we can learn and, and maybe somehow figure out how to protect ourselves better. Let's talk about that. Well, let's uh, attribute that to uh, good practices. What can members operating on a taxpayer fire keep in mind like I know, for instance, uh, early on in an operation while making entry, you want to take a flanking position. Uh, same goes for the truck, you know, wearing your face mask to protect your face. Maybe we talk about a few. If you're in the structure, 
I was not in the structure. I was out in the street. Mm. But if you're in the structure, you have to have, you got to be on air and, yeah, and ready, ready for it. Now, does that mean every second of you're operating like you're waiting for this big boom? No, absolutely not. But you should have all your PP on correctly. You should be looking for signs and symptoms. We should have thermal imager cameras functioning. We should have good communication between what's happening on the roof and what's happening inside. We've got to get as many two-and-a-half-inch charge lines as possible practically and get them in position and we got to get water where it needs to go to calm this thing down to take the energy out of the fire again if the hand lines can do it but just if you you know you can envision a hand line no matter what hole i pull i can only get a limited angle of that two and a half it just can't do it but what can get the good angle it's the cockloaf nozzle done yeah. you know and again it's carried by the squads the squad doesn't necessarily have to deploy it any engine can go get it and get it down and get it get it into play yeah no i think we will be seeing a lot more use of that tool going forward now another question that kind of comes up is okay when we talk about our ventilation and understanding the modern fire environment as opposed to our legacy fire environment the cockloft area is predominantly wood what we believe is that that wood combusting process that's happening in that cockloft probably is below 15%. When we talk about where we see active flame, the oxygen level has to be above 15% to see yellow flames. Below that, though, it can still be combusting. That's an incomplete combustion, creating tremendous amounts of carbon monoxide and, and other products. Is that what makes it ripe? So We'll see that in the cockloft, maybe, but we won't necessarily see that in the apartment and everything. That's more of a smoke explosion or a rapid fire event known as flashover. But now, does the modern fire environment create the situation where we're going to have more backdrafts or less backdrafts? As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of gray area in regards to this phenomenon. So based upon the most current knowledge from UL engineers... We can expect the modern firefighters are more likely going to experience smoke explosions than backdrafts. However, a lot more information, a lot more research is needed. Yeah. In the ventilation bulletin, I know they put a real emphasis on uh, communication, coordination, and controlled ventilation. And a lot of people talk about vertical ventilation, and it's a high priority for us. Maybe you could talk about vertical ventilation and how it affects the fire environment. Absolutely. But sticking to like the, the structure we've been talking about is uh, the taxpayer. So we still believe to to prevent that rapid fire event, whatever it be a smoke explosion or backdraft, we do believe vertical ventilation is still something we need to accomplish quickly and try to get those parts of combustion up and out of the building. They should, though, and that vertical ventilation should always be coordinated with lines moving in. If for whatever reason lines are not going to place, we don't want to pop that top yet. Now, the, the question I always had is, one, we have to know what the uh, roof system is. Is it lightweight roof system or is it a legacy? A lot of these buildings, this particular building on Queens Boulevard was built in 1931. The building on Nagel Avenue was built in 1910. Now, there can be major renovations, but we think when we have that type of building, we're going to have good, solid, legacy lumber. And those that understand what a true two by eight is or a true two by 10 or whatever it's going to be up there. These are solid, massive pieces of wood that can burn for quite some time before they, they fail. But if it's a lightweight situation, that's a whole different creature. My question is always this. So I'm up on the roof. I've got a, a hot mess occurring inside that cockloft, all right? When I start to cut, 
that roof opening, that roof vent, which again, we believe to be the proper procedure, am I going to introduce air into an area that potentially could set it off? If we do it, it doesn't backdraft. We could say, hey, it was the vertical ventilation, but how do we know it was really going to backdraft anyway because it's such a rare occurrence? But right now, with the best information we have, we still believe getting on top of that roof, again, making sure it's sound and and squared away and, and it's not lightweight, we're going to cut that roof and try to get the bad stuff up and out of the building. With lines moving in, key, in coordination with the hand lines moving in. John, maybe for our listeners who want to do a little research of their own, where would you point them? Quickly, uh, to keep it in a nutshell, we have two phenomenal WNYF articles. Externally, those of you out there that were interested on FDNY Pro, you can access every WNYF article from 1940 till today. It is an incredible timestamp and snapshot of what the FDNY is doing four times a year. But the two articles, uh, one in 1980, it was in the fourth issue of 1980 by uh, Deputy Chief Harry Norum, just called Backdraft. It's incredible in 1980 to understand everything he talks about is really still applicable today. So I highly recommend you you grab that one and and read it. You can print it out and read it. Phenomenal. And of course, our beloved Chief Vincent Dunn. His is Backdraft, parentheses, Smoke Explosions. And there he starts to connect the two. That's the third edition of 2000. And uh, he talks a lot about the vertical ventilations. You can read about it there. And we're still learning more. I do believe, if the engineers are telling me right, in 2019, hopefully Underrise Laboratories is going to uh, start delving into the, the backdraft phenomenon with some small-scale experiment and then some large-scale experiment. Again, they're engineers trying to let us understand everything there is to know about fire. They're not telling us how to fight a fire. They're helping us fight that fire. That's great. I appreciate you coming down. This has been great, super informative. I think uh, it's going to be well-received. Thank you, Chief. We appreciate it. And just to kind of wrap it up, I think it was best said, the end of the backdraft WNYF article in 1980 by Chief Harry C. Norum. It is well to remember that a knowledgeable firefighter is well on the road to being a successful professional, and we are professionals. Thanks for having me, Chief. All right. It's great. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, go to FDNYPro.org. FDNY Pro is online at FDNYPro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us, to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to FDNYFoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.